My name's Nick Richards. In 1980, I was a DJ on board the Radio Caroline ship Mi Amigo, and the ship sadly sank. But had it not have been for the RNLI, I wouldn't be able to tell you this today. It's 11 o'clock, the weather, another cold, windy night with a minimum temperature of 2 degrees centigrade. Tomorrow, yet again, rather cold for the time of year with strong southeasterly winds. Currently on a fresh North Sea, it is 2 degrees. And now a repeat of some numbers for our office. Firstly, number 59959. Radio Caroline was an idea that was born out of a man called Ronan O'Reilly, Irishman, who'd gone to London and was managing singers, had a nightclub as well, I think, in the West End of London. And he went into a recording studio with one of his artists, recorded a song, and then, maybe naively, he thought, you just go up, knock on the door of a radio station, they'll play your song. And he found quite quickly, when he went to the BBC, that back in that time, which was early 60s, that wasn't the way it worked. A, because the BBC played very little current chart music. Some say it was like half an hour, maybe an hour, a week. So his next stop was he went to Radio Luxembourg and he thought, well, that's got to be a winner. So in with Radio Luxembourg and he met staff there and they said, well, we played this kind of music, but we only have deals with set record companies and record labels. So if you're not on one of the big labels, we're not going to play your song. So Ronan comes away thinking, well, how do you get a song that I've just recorded onto the radio? And he got talking with people and he realized the only way he's going to do this is if he creates his own radio station, which is a a bizarre, out-of-the-box kind of thought. But he looked into it more and more and eventually he thought and discovered that you could put a radio station on a ship anchor it outside British territorial waters and you could switch on the transmitters, play all the music of the day, all day, all night, like a 24-hour pop service, which really had never existed in the UK. And it coincided with that whole thing of the 60s where you had the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and London and the UK was a a fashion centre as well. So the whole thing sort of just collided, really. It was the right time for something like Radio Caroline to actually come on air. And going from listening to maybe half an hour of current music on the BBC once a week, suddenly you had this ship bobbing around in the North Sea and it was playing all the music you loved, but all day and all night. It was like, you know, it had to be a success and it was very, very quickly. So when I went out with the intention of staying on board for at least three months on the Mi Amigo, very excited, but fairly quickly I realised that this is a very old ship and it is not in good condition at all. I had a look around and looking at the main engine, you could tell, even with my limited knowledge of engines, that main engine had seized. It wasn't going anywhere. It wasn't going to be repaired. They had about four man generators on board. Most of those are being cannibalized to make one good working generator. There was no ship's wheel. The compass, I think, had been taken by someone who hadn't been paid. So it was really like a floating hulk. 
But, of course, the radio station worked perfectly when it was on the air. So the agreement I had was I'll go out there and the side of the ship needed shipping, it needed repainting, uh, anything I could do to help uh, just bring the quality of on board the ship up. Um, that was my job, really, a general dog's body, although I like the title of deckhand better. Um, so that's what I was doing. And I think I'd only been on board a few days when uh, there'd been a, not a full-on storm, but we'd had some rough weather and we'd sprung a hole in the hull of the ship. And I was shown how they fixed the holes in the ship. And that was basically, you, obviously, you find the hole first and then you would plug it with a little wooden stake, build a box, a wooden box around it, then fill it with this special cement. I think it was for use on ships at sea. It, it just mixed and dried well with salt water. And once you'd done that, that was the hole fixed. So I thought, right, is, if this is kind of an example of the ship I'm living on, you know, how safe do I feel? But that side of it ebbed away quite quickly, and it was more... I became fascinated and fell in love with the whole uh, history of the ship uh, and what it was trying to do. I suppose we were all trying to keep it going, A, for Ronan, but also I think we all bought into this idea that, okay, it was a radio station, it was at sea, but it was a little bit of freedom um, as far as the radio station controlled. We, we were never, ever going to be a political radio station it was a bunch of hippies, if you like, just playing music. And that was really as far as it went. So, Wednesday, March the 19th, 1980, I'd gone to bed, I don't know, about five or six in the morning because myself and one of the other DJs, we'd been doing a service on a main generator. And we'd done that. It was all up and running. And as it happened, unluckily, um, there was only four of us on board. There were three... Uh, UK DJs, and there was that one guy from Holland. This was his first ever trip out onto the Mi Amigo. He was the only one awake through most of the daytime morning. And I remember lunchtime, I, I was sleeping in one of the cabins at the back of the ship, and one of the other English DJs came to me and said, you need to come on deck straight away. The anchor chain has gone. Run up onto the deck. And there were a number of navigation beacons, which we could always see from the Mi Amigo, but they were a good few miles away. On this occasion, when I came up on the deck, it was very, very close, and it was either that had broken from its moorings, or we had, and obviously we had. But because we had no compass, we didn't know exactly where we were, so we got onto the Coast Guard, A, letting them know that we changed our location, we drifted somewhat, uh, and they were able to tell us exactly where we were, and we were right above a sandbank, which wasn't ideal, but at least we had a location. And I do remember uh, the Coast Guard saying, at low tide, you're probably going to have about a metre or a metre and a half of water underneath the ship, which wasn't great. But we, we got the anchor chain over and all seemed OK. So we went through the afternoon um, and it was Dutch programs used to go out on Radio Caroline during the day. And then at 6 p.m. it switched to what we called the English service or the international service. Um, because there was only three of us uh, that were able to do anything on the ship, we put on these storm tapes, which were just big reels of continuous music tapes, because nobody could have done a show and been out 
you know, checking the bilges and things like that. So we did as much as we could. Um, every hour we go on the air, read the weather and give out any new relevant code numbers for the office. And all seemed well till about six, uh, six-ish in the evening. And I think that's when the tide started to change. I remember we were all in the in the galley just drinking coffee and suddenly the ship was making creaking noises that I'd never heard before and I'd heard most of the noises that ship made and suddenly there was like a, a boom, boom and it was shuddering all the way through the ship. We figured as the tide was lifting we were banging on that sandbank. What we found out later was that the broken main anchor was probably sitting underneath the ship and it was hitting all the old holes on the hull and with the sandbank it it was just like making loads of new holes but we had pumps in all the bilges and we seemed to just about be controlling the amount of water coming into the ship so all this time we kept in touch with the coast guard let them know exactly what was going on they did advise If we wanted, this is kind of mid-afternoon, they could launch a lifeboat and it could just stand by if we needed it. And I think at the time we said, no, we don't need it, we're grand. Um, But aren't I glad uh, now that that lifeboat from Sheerness was launched? It, It showed up late afternoon and I remember seeing, it was kind of dusk at that time and I remember they had like a searchlight on and they were showing... Um, shining it all along our ship so we knew they were there and then really we just um, uh, waited and waited because in an ideal world we thought the history of the Mi Amigo it'd been in similar scrapes before and it had pulled through so the threat of the ship actually sinking was way back in my imagination I didn't think it was ever going to sink but it was just great that the lifeboat was there a helicopter probably wouldn't have been able to help us, A, because of the height of our broadcast mast, and also it was getting dark, and I don't think a helicopter ever would have even attempted to lift us off. So it was really down to the RNLI sitting with us for such a long time, during the afternoon and into the evening. I know, and it does make sense, to think that the lifeboat crew know better than we do, or we did. But I really think that wasn't one of the options that we were considering coming off the ship. I mean, it was floating. We had the spare anchor. Surely our people in the office would have known we've got a serious dilemma to deal with here. And they were looking at launching one of the tenders, one of the supply boats that were going to come out and help us, maybe even tow us out. Um, As regards, you know, fixing the holes, there were so many. And there was nowhere in Europe we could take that ship. Um, it was outlawed all across Europe. So you couldn't take it in somewhere, get it repaired and bring it out again. So that was always the dilemma. You you had to do any kind of running repairs at sea. My main job was checking the amount of water that was coming in. Once or twice, I did go up onto the bridge and speak to the Coast Guard, but I didn't have a direct conversation with the lifeboat. But I know they were trying and urging us to come off. It would have been safer. You know, the two options, do you stay on a rusty old ship with no engine, compass, wheel, etc., or do you come on board a nice, safe lifeboat? Now, of course, the obvious one, go on the lifeboat. But I think we thought at the time, if we come off the Mi Amigo, we are abandoning it and it could just go 
But as long as we're on board, we have a chance of saving it. And, uh, you know, that's what we did until, I think, about 10.30 or 11 o'clock at night, I'd come out of the area where the studios are, the main house area, and I walked along the deck. I looked into the engine room, just checking, uh, had any water come in into the engine room. And it had been dry, totally dry, about an hour before, but suddenly it was kind of half... Uh, halfway up the bilges and it seemed to be coming in quick so I I knew we had one other pump in the forepeak I ran up to go and get it and in my hurry what I didn't see in the dark was the uh, steel uh, anchor chain rest that was between me and the forepeak where the the spare um, pump was and I ran straight into it banged my head off and thought, oh my God, <laughs> can anything else go worse? Um, anyway, got the pump, dragged it through, uh, eventually managed to prime it and there was more water coming out of the engine room. But do you know what? Um, I think we kind of knew at that time it, that we're looking at abandoning the ship. We got to the point where there was more water coming in than we could pump out using every pump we had. So I went up onto the the bridge and explained to the other guys who were talking to the Coast Guard and probably the lifeboat, I said, like, we have not got a good situation here. And they kind of looked at each other. And two of the English DJs went down into the studio and went on air live and, if you like, officially closed down the radio station. They... Uh, tried to tell anyone that that, um, that was listening, we're, we're not in serious danger. Uh, we're going on to the lifeboat, and we really do hope that the ship can take it. If it can, then we'll be back. If not, well, we don't like to say it. Caroline, the first and the last of the pirate radio ships, has sunk. This is how Caroline DJ Steve Gordon broke the news that they were going off the air and abandoning ship. Well, we're sorry to tell you that due to the severe con- weather conditions and also to the fact that we're shoving quite a lot of water we're closing down and the crew are at this stage leaving the ship uh, obviously we hope to be back with you as soon as possible but uh, we'd just like to assure you all on now that there's nothing to worry about we're all quite safe just for the moment we'd like to say goodbye Tom? Yeah it's um, not a very good occasion really I have to hurry this because the lifeboat is standing by we're not leaving and disappearing we're going on to the lifeboat hoping that the pumps can take it. Um, If they can, we'll be back. If not, well, I don't like to say it. I think we'll be back one way or another. Yeah, I think so. From all of us, for the moment, goodbye and God bless. The radio station was officially closed down. We played the theme tune, which was Caroline by the Fortunes, and it faded away. I switched off the transmitters, and then it was a case of getting four humans off the ship and onto the lifeboat. It took uh, probably 45 minutes or an hour to get across. Uh, The ship's canary, Wilson, we've had a canary ever since the station reopened in 1972. And this was a new one who'd only been with us six months. And uh, we did manage to pass him across to the lifeboat people happily. And he's now back on dry land. I do remember when all four of us were safely on the lifeboat and... We couldn't see where we were going because it seemed like a sealed unit in the lifeboat. But I do remember after about 20 minutes, the hatch door opened and one of the crew on the lifeboat said, all of the lights on your ship have just gone out. 
which meant obviously the water was rising in the Mi Amigo and it had got to the point it had covered the generator which we were running on. We'd left the ship's lights on and everything. And we all looked at each other and thought, well, there's no point, you know, doing anything other than going into land. So that's what we did. We took the journey from uh, the Knock Deep Channel was where the ship was when it was at proper anchor, but we dragged a bit. So the decision was, let's go into uh, Sheerness. Well, the records and, and, and the tapes are always replaceable, but the losing the Caroline is the bit that hurts at the moment, sir. But we're not going to call it a day until the seas have moderated and we've been out to have a look for ourselves. For a number of weeks afterwards, I used to have the most appalling nightmares, imagining what could have happened on that night if the lifeboat hadn't showed up. What would we have done? Would we have climbed up the mast? Um, then I had, I'd have dreams about, I was downstairs below deck and water was gushing in and you suddenly wake up, cold sweat, it, it was not a nice period, but thanks to the RNLI, I'm still able to tell the story and I'm still able to be thankful for what they did that night. I didn't know until my mother told me years later that she had sent a personal letter to Charles Bowery at the Sheerness RNLI and she'd made, she didn't tell me how much, a substantial financial contribution for the work he and his crew had done and how much she appreciated it. Um, today, um, it's, it's the charity that always jumps out to me. Um, I live in Ireland now, but as you know, RNLA covers Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland, Scotland, Wales, everywhere around the British Isles, if you like. On a flag day, which we haven't had a few times recently because of COVID and everything, but if there's ever uh, a day when they're collecting, uh, I live in Cork in Ireland now, and if they're on the streets and it's a flag day, I, well, first I go to the ATM and I'll get something like 60 euro out. And I will go up to whoever's collecting and they're shaking the little box and I'll put the money in and they say, are you sure about that? And I go, oh, I am most definitely sure about it. I, and I know my mother, um, she has belonged to the RNLI for a long time. Her Christmas cards every year are still RNLI Christmas cards. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's very difficult to explain. It is an emotional thing for me because there could have been two outcomes that night on a rusty ship that could have sank, could have taken all our lives, thank goodness it didn't. And there's the other way that it did work out. And uh, I was saved, my life was saved by the RNLI. The RNLI saved my life. Sounds dramatic. There's no other way of saying it really. My name is Annie Jago. I am a senior lifeguard with the RNLI and I'm also volunteering for the lifeboat crew. If you want to hear more stories from the RNLI's 200 Voices collection, then head to rnli.org forward slash 200 voices or subscribe to the RNLI 
wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. 200 Voices is an adventurous audio limited production for the RNLI.